Look at these three words written larger than the rest, with a special pride never written before or since. Tall words proudly saying, We the people. Welcome to the LexRex Institute podcast. I'm David. He's Alexander. He's an attorney, but won't be speaking as one today. All the opinions you hear today will be our opinions as individuals, not necessarily the opinions of the organization. And as a reminder, this is a legal issues podcast, not a political issues podcast, and nothing you will hear is legal advice. The LexRex Institute is a nonprofit constitutional advocacy organization. If you want to learn more about us, you can check us out online, www.lexrex.org. You can read about us there or make a donation. As a reminder, Lex Rex is Latin for the law is king because the law is our only king in the United States. That's right. And that's particularly appropriate today for reasons we'll get into shortly. But before that, we're going to be starting off the episode today, thank you, with another installment of our Supreme Court Hall of Shame. That's right, Supreme Court Hall of Shame, once again. So this time around... What are we looking at today, David? Well, this time around, we're going to be looking at Employment Division v. Smith, which is a 1990 decision. I actually, I missed that you had put this onto the outline oh. for today. Fortunately, I do know that case pretty well, so well. I think I should be able to discuss that anyway. Um, yeah, right. Employment Division v. Smith. We've mentioned this one before, right. kind of briefly in passing. Mm-hmm. This is very famously an opinion by none other than the late Justice Antonin Scalia. Uh, Obviously, as we're an originalist organization, we're big fans of Antonin Scalia here, but it doesn't mean that he always got it right. In fact, sometimes he got it really, really wrong, especially when drugs were involved, uh, as Mm -hmm. indeed they were here. David, what's going on in this case? Well, two men... Smith is one. I don't mean that he's doing drugs. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, drugs are bad for your brain, whether or not you're the one doing them. That's the lesson from Justice Scalia's opinion. Yeah, d- don't mean to imply that he was under the influence while he was composing this opinion. But uh, uh, No, judging from the state of his opinions on drugs, I-, I think he probably never got anywhere near them. I think he probably despised them with a deep, biting passion. <laughs> that is the sense That's... one gets, but... In any case, (laughs) in this case, we're we're talking about two guys in Oregon, one of whom was Smith. I forget the other guy's last name, but they were, you know, both involved. Employment division. (laughs) No, uh, (laughs) that is not who I was thinking of. Um, Oh. (laughs) But these two guys were members of the Native American church, which as part of its worship services involves the sort of sacramental consumption of peyote. Now, probably a specific Native American church. Well, th- right? that, that's the name of the, that's the name of the particular church, as it turns out. Just the Native American church. I don't mean to imply it's the only one, hmm. but that is the specific name of this organization. That does sound a bit made up. <laughs> but, uh, Usually, you would just say I'm, I'm a traditional practicer of, you know, I, I don't know what tribe he was a member of, but um, yeah. whatever tribes. But at any rate, as part of so as part of you know religious practice, they consumed peyote. As a result of which, presumably after a... What, now, what is peyote for those of us who don't know, <laughs> who may stay as far away from drugs as Scalia does? Yeah. Peyote is a hallucinogenic cactus that is, you know, associated with lots of, you know, spiritual rituals. Uh, that so, Sort of like mushrooms, right? The, the psychedelic mushrooms, but it's rather than being a fungus, it's a plant. 
Yep. Prickly. Eat the peyote. Drug of the devil. Dream your dreams of hate. Anyway, as a result, though, of their consumption of peyote, presumably following a drug test or some kind of disclosure of this fact to their employer, they were let go from their jobs and denied unemployment benefits. Yeah, applied for unemployment with the state office. That's the employment division right. that's a party in this case. And were denied unemployment. Yeah. Now, why were they denied unemployment? So it was regarded as workplace misconduct under the Oregon state law that controlled. So uh, a for-cause dismissal, basically. Okay. So, and for our audience... You know, David, you're aware of where these guys worked previously. I'm aware of where they worked previously. You remember what it was? Um, a drug rehab. That's facility. right. That's right. I was going to say some kind of healthcare <laughs> facility, but it was. That's right. It was. No, it's specifically a drug a rehab, rehab facility. facility. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So if there's one place, if there's any job, well, I mean, I guess maybe I wouldn't want my surgeon uh, on peyote either. But <laughs> apart from you know things where where the effects of a drug would just make somebody unable to perform the duties of their job. Yeah. You can see why doing drugs would be a direct problem uh, in a in this sort of context, right? Yeah. In a drug rehab facility. It's a bunch of people that have done drugs before. If everybody that works there is doing drugs in front of them, probably not going to go too well. Those are no. people that are probably not going to get a successful recovery. You can see why they would fire him. You can see why this would be considered for a cause. What's the problem? Why shouldn't they have fired him? Or I guess at the very least, why should he get unemployment? Yeah, see, I think the challenge that they pursued actually didn't you know, involve restoring their jobs. I think it was, as far as I Yeah, as I it was recall, just for unemployment. Just looking for the benefits. Right. But, yeah, well, the... Because of a little thing called... The First Amendment. The First Amendment yeah. to the Constitution, right? Which has a clause called, it's a little clause, may not have heard it before, called the Free Exercise Clause, right. which guarantees the free exercise of religion. Now, the healthcare facility, the drug rehab place, being a private company, they can probably fire this guy for, for doing drugs on the job. Now, if it were a job where that mattered less, and this was still this guy's religious practice, maybe more debatable. They're not bringing that challenge here. Right. Uh, not debated whether or not they can be fired. What's debated is whether the, the government, the employment division, the people responsible for unemployment checks, which are an arm of the government, and as we know, First Amendment's incorporated down to the states via the 14th Amendment. So they're not allowed to discriminate against your free exercise of religion. This guy argues. Smoking peyote or eating? How, how does one how does one imbibe peyote? Um, I think there are probably multiple ways, but I think in this case the the ritual form of consumption they were doing was some kind of eating or maybe like a tea. I, but I think it was ingesting. Okay, so any at any rate, ingesting peyote as part of his religion, something required for his religion, is now saying I should not be denied unemployment benefits. Before we get to Justice Scalia's opinion on this, what are our thoughts about that, David? Well, you know, I, I think probably the natural response to something like this is going to be, well, still against the law, right? Obviously, you don't want to have a situation where anyone could just say any old behavior, if I say it's part of my religion, is now legal. But do we want do we want people to be able to pass laws that prohibit religious practices? We do not, and hence the First Amendment. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's <laughs> right. So if this is a religious practice, does it really matter that it's against the law? Well, that that seems to be 
the overriding question. <laughs> yeah, that, so that that's sort of the question we're getting into in this case. As you guys know, Lex Rex Institute takes a lot of cases that are free exercise cases. We are having to contend with the decision in Employment v. Smith every day because this is controlling law yeah. on free exercise cases now. It's been controlling law the whole time since this decision came down. So what was that, like 30 years at this point, 32 years? Yep. Yeah, 1990. Yeah, so it's been a while. So prior to this case, prior to 1990, controlling law on this was going to be the test from Sherbert v. Werner. That's a 1963 case. And what that case said is that if the government passes a law that imposes a burden upon people's right to freely exercise their religion, that law is going to be subject to strict scrutiny. If you remember yeah. our balancing test, we got a video on that, really low view count, so I guess you guys already know it. But if you don't, check out that video on YouTube. That's the Lex Rex Institute on YouTube. It's called What Are Balancing Tests? But if you remember from that video, strict scrutiny is the highest level of scrutiny that needs to be shown. So it's the hardest for the government to show. They need to show that there is a compelling state interest and that the means they employed to accomplish that interest are narrowly tailored to that effect. So narrow tailoring means basically there's no alternative way to protect against this thing. Yeah. Then Employment v. Division v. Smith comes in. And what's the decision in that one? Basically. That's that's the case we were talking about. Yeah. I know some people are bad with names, but that, that's that's the bad Scalia opinion, yeah. the boneheaded opinion that he made that changes the Sherbert test. And effectively what it does is. Makes it so that if any law is of general applicability and essentially does not target religious practice. Yeah. So it may discriminate against religious practice, but they didn't mean to. Yeah. This is just a normal law for normal people. Right. It's not trying to it's not trying to discriminate against people. And if you do that, you get a rational basis review, which means government always wins. <laughs> you can't get rid of that law. I mean that that's effectively what it means. Yeah. I mean you can bring rational basis challenges. We have a few coming down the pike right now that I think we have a good chance of winning on. But basically what you have to show if you want to win a rational basis challenge is the government had no reason to do this because the test is rationally related to a legitimate government interest. Yeah. And at this point, virtually everything is a legitimate government interest. <laughs> and good luck showing there's no rational relationship yeah, I, between what they've done and that interest. I was, I was doing a little bit of reading about this and I found one instance, which seems to be one of very few if they're indeed any more than just this one, but where, where a law was actually found to fail the new employment division test. And it was municipal law targeting basically Santeria specifically, which, you know, th that's the sort of Caribbean sort of voodoo religion, for lack of a better term, um, which I don't know a lot about, but apparently involves ritual sacrifice of animals at certain points. And you know, I could have guessed that. That's <laughs> so, I don't know a lot about that religion either, but I could have guessed that part. Yeah, uh, and so you know, the, a law was passed that basically, as I understand it anyway, I didn't read the text of the law, but the way the the sort of secondary literature described it is, it had all these carve outs for any other reason you might be killing an animal. Yes, um, yeah, that's yeah. But basically, just sort of crafted it so that only if you were doing it for ritual purposes would it be you know outlawed under this and so even there it didn't meet rational basis but you can see the real reason behind the curtain is they think that law actually was targeted yeah at a religious practice yeah yeah and and that's so that's the state of the argument on free exercise clause cases right now is you argue over whether or not 
the law in question is a law of quote unquote general applicability or whether or not it's one that targets a religion. Because if it's general applicability, you pretty much lose. Yeah. Now with a few caveats, like that, that that's the conventional wisdom. Lex Rex Institute has ways of winning even on those. Uh, we're not gonna blab about them <laughs> on a podcast because <laughs> our opponents listen to these too. Uh, but we've got ways of winning on those. But conventional wisdom is you can't win uh, rational basis review cases. So that's what you argue about now. Now, what is this law of general applicability? That's not a term that, that existed in common law prior to Scalia inventing it <laughs> for this opinion. So, so, so what he says is, it is no more necessary to regard the collection of a general tax, for example, as prohibiting the free exercise of religion by those citizens who believe support of organized government to be sinful than it is to regard some tax as abridging the freedom of the press of those publishing companies that must pay the tax as a condition of standing in business. It is a permissible reading of the text in one case, as in the other, to say that if prohibiting the exercise of religion or burdening the activity of printing is not the object of tax, but merely the incidental effect of a generally applicable or otherwise valid provision, the First Amendment has not been offended. So that's his reasoning. Is that much of a description? Not really. <laughs> it's just kind of the normal laws for normal people. Yeah, right? uh, if a law is Not about... some wacky place that oppresses religion. Yeah. That's not what we do here. We don't oppress religion here. Yeah, you know, just however you might govern human behavior. You know, like with laws, um, that seems to be sort of the... He kind of keeps repeating this, too. Like he says here, conscientious scruples have not, in the course of the long struggle for religious toleration, relieved individuals from obedience to a general law not aimed at the promotion or restriction of religious beliefs. Yeah. Which is not quite true, uh, because we do have conscientious objectors from military conscription. Right. So, you know, it's actually kind of ignoring the history there, but... Yeah. You know, that's, again, he's just kind of repeating the same thing. Yeah. I, I, if I remember correctly, the sort of counterexample he offers of what wouldn't be something like this is if, well, if we passed a law saying you're not allowed to bow down in front of a golden calf, that wouldn't be a law of general applicability. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's if, if you show, see, that's the thing is most of the time, if you're trying to show that a law is not a law of general applicability, it comes down to exactly the kind of analysis that Scalia usually hated, mm -hmm. which is looking at comments from legislators. Yeah. You know, if, if a legislator said, we don't like all these religious people going around and keeping gay people from having wedding cakes, you can win in the post-Smith era. In fact, that's exactly how the Masterpiece Cake Shop case was won, is there were some comments from state bureaucrats saying, we... Basically, we don't like religious people. That was dispositive yeah. in that case. Now, Scalia obviously didn't like making recourse to comments from legislators because he thought laws should speak for themselves. Right. Now, can you see why this opinion would be at direct odds with that? Yeah, because it's really coming down to questions about what was this law meant to accomplish rather than close analysis of it in an, on its own terms. Laws do not state their purpose. Right. Laws just say what's prohibited or what's allowed. Yeah. Classically, anyway. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. Sometimes you get some interesting uh, text, but by and large, yeah, laws don't tend to go out of their way to say, this is why we're doing this and we want to accomplish these things by this means. I mean, it usually just says you can't do X. And then he's also got this, this is all, this is dicta, I think. In the episode. So, so dicta is, is part of the opinion that is not controlling law. It's just sort of reasoning or extraneous thoughts that a justice may have. And he's got this section that has sort of an escape valve, 
where he says, the only decisions in which we have held that the First Amendment bars application of neutral, generally applicable law to religiously motivated action have involved not the free exercise clause alone, but the free exercise clause in conjunction with other constitutional protections, such as freedom of speech and of the press. And then he says, see Cantwell v. Connecticut. Yeah. So that's very recently in the Kennedy case, which we covered on this podcast. That was the coach that was praying at high school basketball. Football. I'm sorry, high school football games. Mm -hmm. Justice Gorsuch sort of expanded this, what we now call hybrid rights analysis that Scalia introduced in Smith. And now that seems to be our saving grace on free exercise clause claims is that, well, the way that you can tell if something is beyond the pale, it's a law that shouldn't be acceptable, is if it also infringes upon additional rights. And I think that's a much better framework. That's a much better analysis. It's just, it's particularly frustrating because Scalia seems to have recognized that was a possibility and not gone anywhere with it. Yeah, yeah. it was that sort of distinction between hybrid rights and what Gorsuch did, I think is interesting because Gorsuch, I think he stated it as double protection rather than a hybrid right. Yes. So he's basically saying That's this particular action is protected by two distinct rights. Whereas the yeah, the, the decision here seems to go more in the direction of, you know, you need a supplementary protection in, in well, certain instances. And I think the double protection is a much better way to be able to tell which laws run afoul of the Constitution. You know, because you know, there is something to be said for the idea that we do need generally applicable laws. And if you're going to craft a religion that just says, you know, well, take the, uh, oh, what are those people from the second Indiana Jones movie? The Kali the, the the, the cult, yeah. where they're like a murder cult. Uh-huh. If you got a murder cult going around murdering people, obviously that doesn't fall within First Amendment protections. Obviously, free exercise clause does not protect that. But why doesn't it protect it? Is it just because that's a law of general applicability? Well, no, I think that's part of it. But a better analysis would say, okay, that may fall within something that is plausibly free exercise, but this whole host of other rights and guarantees the government has directly militate against that. Yeah, you know, the the people whose hearts you're pulling out have a right to have you not pull their hearts out of their chests. Right. And because there there are a whole heck of a lot of rights on that one side, we're going to say that even though even though we are imposing a burden on your religion, you know, you can't practice your religion here if you're part of a murder cult. It's illegal. Even though we are absolutely burdening that, because there are other rights involved, we say that that's not going to be permitted, not just because it's a law of general applicability. Yeah. So, you know, Gorsuch is really doing double time work here because he got rid of not only lemon in that opinion but i think he sort of struck a blow against smith as well uh, because i really do think that that compound rights analysis is a better way to go about this and and it's i mean it's it's kind of i keep i keep going back to this is a very non-scalia opinion yeah. because scalia really liked bright line tests right things where you're not just having to kind of nebulously balance two concepts you know which side of the concept things fall on. You know, these things are permitted, these things aren't permitted. This general applicability test is nothing like that. Yeah, and you know, it- How do you know if a law is generally applicable? It, it, it makes me think too, because there's a very famous address he gave to Congress that we've talked about before. He, you know, was talking about what makes the American constitution unique and he compares it to the Soviet one. 
And he said, the Soviet Union has a much better constitution, bill of rights, or much better yeah. Bill of Rights than we do. Right. It protected everything. It yeah. had not just free speech. It had freedom of the press. <laughs> it had freedom. You know, he goes on yeah, and on. Yeah, that one. But I, I think it's interesting because, you know, he was so we know he was aware then of some of the Soviet legal history. And one of the things I think is, is relevant is that they guaranteed freedom of worship, but very yeah. particularly yep. not freedom of religion. And one of the reasons is because freedom of religion implies practice. And, you know, in the Soviet context, say they had wanted to actually outlaw Christian services, they could have passed a law about, you know, consuming alcohol in public places. And, you know, you can say, oh, this is a public health concern. And suddenly you can't have communion anymore. So you could effectively. Right. Well, and that actually happened during the pandemic. Yeah. You know, they, they mm-hmm. told Roman Catholics that they couldn't administer, uh, what, what do they call it, last Last confession to people who were dying in uh, hospitals? Colloquially known as last rites, more technically extreme unction, but uh, that probably only yeah. matters to. Like, that that five was people. an egregious <laughs> deprivation of free. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that was. That's among the most offensive I've ever heard of. Because if you believe what the Roman Catholics do, you believe that people who die without having done that. Um, They're certainly imperiling their souls, if nothing else. Yeah. They're spending additional time in purgatory for yeah. it. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, you know. That's a, that is a burden on religion, if, oh, if, yeah. if I've ever heard of oh, one. You're, you're imposing consequences beyond the grave upon these people. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, I, I don't I don't know how there were more challenges on that. We tried to find a plaintiff on that. Uh, but it, it probably would have either needed to be the family of somebody who didn't receive last rites uh, or, you know, a, a particular diocese or Roman Catholic church. There were no takers on that. Shocking. Yeah. That was a egregious deprivation of their religion but that case gets that much harder under smith yeah that's frankly even though i really wanted to bring that case that case is an uphill battle under smith because it absolutely was a law of general applicability right and and you know doesn't matter how how egregious the burden you impose upon somebody is if it's a law of general applicability you get rational basis review and yeah there is a rational reason it not, might not be a very good reason it might not be a you know, one that would be sufficient to justify the policy, but there is a rational reason not to allow priests into the hospital to administer that. They could be carrying COVID. They could transmit it to other patients. I don't think it's particularly compelling, but it doesn't need to be right. under the Smith test, which is why it's a bad test. Yeah, that's. I think that's the, the sort of the key takeaway is that, you know, what may seem comparatively innocuous Oh, you know, they, yeah, they didn't want guys who work at a drug rehab facility to be doing drugs, even though it was part of their religion. But it, it's the yeah. principle and the way it, it actually influences the rest of law that is vitally important in this case. Well, and that was why I stressed the facts to the degree that I did. Yeah. Because I want to make Justice Scalia's opinion sympathetic here. You don't want these people to win. They have behaved unreasonably and are asking for an unreasonable thing. And that's why you don't want them to win. That's very famous maxim we repeated a lot on this show bad facts make bad law yeah. when the facts of a case are such that you don't want a particular litigant to win you tend to get bad decisions from that generally scalia was a model of judicial temperament where he would not let that influence his opinions oftentimes he was you know, absolutely uh, ridiculed and besmirched for not not doing that people called him heartless callous all the time but in this case, I think he absolutely did. So. Yep. Shame. 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 
Yeah, and he ought to be ashamed. Yeah. I think part of it, too, is... And, and here's where I get political. Here's where I get into my opinion. So if you want to turn this part off, this is not a legal opinion. <laughs> but Scalia was a very devout Roman Catholic, right? I mean, he, he drove several hours so he could go to church services that were still in Latin <laughs> after Vatican II took place because he didn't like the decision to do services in English. You know, I, I think a, at least a big part of this is that Scalia's context, his religious context, is that he's not from a persecuted church. Yeah, or, well... Not in his... He's from the seat of Peter. <laughs> you know, it, it's, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And I think that was his attitude. You know, I don't have to worry about free exercise. These waggy people that want to do peyote, maybe they have to worry about it, but I'm, I'm okay. Yeah, well, you know, which historically speaking is an interesting perspective for a Roman Catholic to have because uh, things weren't always ideal for Roman Catholics in the Anglo-American system, but... <laughs> That's actually pretty true. It's it's if you look at recent history, uh, they were fairly persecuted, at least in the United States. Yeah, significantly more so uh, in the UK. Um, but uh, well, that went both ways. It, it did. UK. It did. It, it it went both ways in much. <laughs> I, I would argue Protestants were a lot more persecuted uh, under Roman Catholic monarchs than the other way around. Sure, 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 sure. But you know, full uh, sort of legal equality for Roman Catholics came fairly late in the day in Britain with, with, you know, some interruptions along the way. But at any rate, point being, yeah, I, I think it's easy to, from the vantage point of one of the largest religious groupings in the country, and one that, you know, is very mainstream by this point, 1990, no one's going to care, right? May have been right. a big deal when JFK was running, but since then, basically, not so big a deal. Well, and it's, even if Roman Catholics have been persecuted, the sort of persecution that a Roman Catholic's mind is going to run toward isn't going to be free exercise type persecutions. No one right. ever told them they couldn't do the Eucharist. Yeah. People might not have liked them very much. They might not have wanted them in office, but they've been free to practice the externalities of their religion. Yeah. Where that hasn't been true of a lot of other groups. Like if you look at Mormons, you know, Mormons have some very negative Supreme Court jurisprudence going against them. You know, it, it's the test saying the, the Reynolds test saying that you know, basically, yeah, you may already have your polygamy. You may have been polygamous when, when you joined the union, Utah. Yep. But nevertheless, we believe that marriage is marriage between one man and one woman is so integral and so foundational to our society that we're going to tell you that even though it's a pre-existing practice, one that's required by your religion, you can't keep doing it. Right. That's never happened to the Roman guy. And, you know, it's, it's sort of a side note on the yeah, so it, it's an interesting case, though, because I think you're absolutely right that if this were a more sort of accepted, more mainstream religious practice, I I think it's very unlikely the decision goes. I think he way. didn't think it was a real religion. Yeah, I think he didn't think it was a real religion. Yeah. That's, anyway, that's it. Shame. So. <laughs> Shame. Shame. You're good most of the time, Scalia, but we got to call it out when you're not. Yeah. All right, so... Yeah, so I mentioned earlier that the Latin of our name would be significant, and that's because we are today going to do the first of what will probably be a, a much shorter series than our Summer of the Revolutions series was, but brief series on the Roman Republic that we are calling... Yep. <laughs> oh, Rome, yeah, folks. The, the Roman music I that we all know and love. It's the Roma. <laughs> Uh. 
<laughs> You're not a fan of my Roman music, David? Oh, you, you know, um, I'm pretty sure that's uh, technically speaking Neapolitan, but, um, you know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, how about this one? Try this one instead. Is that uh, Ben-Hur? Ah, you got it faster than I thought you would. <laughs> I don't know what actual Roman music sounded like. Yeah. I, I assume it's probably not. <laughs> I don't think much like that. I'm pretty sure brass was probably less prominent. <laughs> but uh, They had trumpets. They, do, know, they did have trumpets. I think probably mostly in a military context. Yeah. <laughs> they actually, they, you know, they found trumpets in King Tutankhamun. This is not Roman, but it's several thousand years earlier than Rome. They found trumpets in King Tutankhamun's tomb, one made of silver, one made of something else. I think copper. copper uh, and they played them too. way back in the 30s. Hmm. Yeah. You know, this is not the forum for this conversation, but I was thinking the other day about how, you know, it blows my mind that metallurgy is such a widespread human practice. Like how you start making stuff out of metal seems crazy to me before you have metal. Talk. Find these rocks. <laughs> take this shiny stuff out of them. Yeah. <laughs> it's melt it. Melt them down. Yeah. Mix it with different shiny stuff from other rocks. Yeah. And then you'll get better yeah. at stuff. Anyway, that, that's well, a Well, maybe metal's very, very good at what it does. So that's, yeah. I can understand why. When, when you see that somebody else has it, you'd be, figure out how the heck they did that. And then you try yeah. to make metal too. Anyway, but. that's that's a very different podcast. <laughs> but, yeah. Well, and, and it's a fun fact. So when they played those trumpets from Tutankhamun's tomb, it actually summoned a sort of ancient demon. Ah. Uh, and, and that <laughs> ancient demon has been oppressing the world since that time. So. Oh, well, hmm. I wish fact. they hadn't done that. Uh, anyway. <laughs> no, I, it was good. To, it was good to hear the trumpets. I, oh, okay. <laughs> that, but it's not true, though. That's it. Didn't summon any ancient demon, at least that we know of. But uh, we 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 are going to be calling this series "The Fall of Rome" because it's fall now, and it's a stupid pun. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I actually hear. Oh, thank you. Rome, the ancient society, strength, unity. All under the person of the emperor, although not the part that we're talking about, because we're doing the republic. <laughs> yeah, not. not uh, this, <laughs> I don't know. What do you say about Rome? It's it's kind of a kind of a big deal, right? I mean, yeah, you know, probably the inspiration, more or less, for the empire from Star Wars. <laughs> well, the Roman Empire is yes. Uh, also, the yeah. Nazis. Which, which, but, by the way, um, if you've not seen Andor. That's a Star Wars show. It's not, you know, and slash or. I thought that's what it was initially, but it's <laughs> the name of a character. It's a Star Wars show. You have to subscribe to Disney's streaming service, which has nothing else worthwhile on it because um, the other Star Wars shows are garbage. But if you're looking for a Star Wars show, I can give the Lex Rex stamp of approval on Andor. It's, it's doing, a, I mean, they've written really, really well how tyrannies work, how structurally tyrannies work, and the sorts of things that, you know, that they do. So it's written pretty well. I recommend it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, Rome, though. Uh, we're going to be talking about Rome. This this particular time, we're going to be looking at the way the Romans structured and conducted their voting. Uh, we alluded to this previously, promised a long time ago that we would talk about it at length at some later date. And this is that later date. This is that date. Yeah. We're going to go over today, just so you guys know. Although you've already seen the timestamps, so you know that. Yeah, <laughs> we're trying to keep this relatively brief, but the you know things get very complex very quickly when you talk about Roman voting because they have so many different contexts in which you do vote. Yeah, so remember, Rome is a republic, so not a direct democracy. Although I, I think that their republican system evolved around the same time as the Athenian 
direct democracy did. Is that right? When, oh, shoot. When was Athens? So that would have been the golden age, I think, right around the 6th century BC. Yeah. So what we think of as sort of the uh, the golden age, like sort of Periclean Athens, I think, was 5th century. But at any rate, very close to that. And meanwhile, the Roman Republican system seems to start coming into shape around 500 BC or so. So very so close, pretty close at any rate. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, certainly before Rome had contact directly with Greece. So... Not and obviously, which of these two is going to be more influential on the American system? Rome, for sure. Yeah. Was, was the Athenian one influential on anything? Probably somewhere Trick, in the trick world. question. <laughs> Very influential as sort of a warning, right? Nobody <laughs> wanted democracies after Greece had one. Democracy is sort of a garbage system, sort of how that was viewed for a long, long time. Yeah. Uh, republics are what Aristotle. you want. But, yeah, uh, I mean, it, the people that lived in it said this is a garbage system. We don't, <laughs> we don't want to have it. I mean, you, you eventually get, you get Draco from that, whereas we, where he's the person where we get our word draconian. Yeah. Uh, eventually, people said we want a dictator. And that's sort of the warning everybody has about democracies is eventually everybody votes for a dictator. That was actually the warning that George Washington had, John Jay had, many of our founding fathers had about the Articles of Confederation that led them to form a more perfect union in the Constitution. Yeah. So again, we're not really a democracy, not trying to imitate the Greek system. We're much more inspired by the Roman system, although that one had lots of flaws too. So we yes. did correct those. And today we're going to get into some of those flaws as it comes to voting. Yeah. So as I mentioned, you know, there were several different contexts in which the Romans voted, but there were basically three main ones. One that was called the Centuriate Assembly because they organized it into centuries. So groups of hundred men. That was the military, I believe. So. Yeah, it, it was, par- you know, yeah, it was, it was designed to parallel that and it was structured around the, the military. So you had different centuries of senior soldiers and junior soldiers and officers but right yeah so they were they were grouped by groups of a hundred yeah uh, and voted as those 100 person blocks and the the 100 person blocks weren't geographic or anything they were based on i think the quantity of land they owned uh, so yep. more senior soldiers tended to be grouped with other more senior soldiers yeah so i think that that's a principle that basically holds true through all of roman voting is that you get classification based on property and generally speaking there are five classes but the you know it gets called well, some of them are geographical yes but then with within those things as yes. well you get property classification too. it's it's very so it's russian okay. nesting dolls <laughs> there's, there's no way for us to describe this succinctly so <laughs> but here's best i can do it's like like the pawn stars guy best i can do is this okay best yeah. i can do is this assemblies are your basic political unit not mm-hmm really individuals. Individuals are organized into assemblies and assemblies are the only groups. And there's lots of assemblies. There's some main ones, which are going to be the ones that we talk about, uh, but there's lots and lots of those. And assemblies are responsible for all legislation and all elections. Yeah. So they elect all of the elected positions within the Roman Republic. Not all positions in the Roman Republic are, however, elected. Some of the elected officials also appoint people. So they're either appointed by people who have been elected uh, or they are themselves elected. I think that's true of pretty much everybody. I don't think there's other ways of coming into office besides that. Yeah. So let's talk about a couple of those assemblies. The big ones, the ones that matter. The one that David already mentioned is the tribal assembly. What's the Latin name for that? Oh, you you mentioned the, oh, you haven't talked about that one yet. You mentioned the century. Yeah. So what's the Latin name for that one? Oh, I don't have this in front of me. Concilium Centuriatum or something like that. <laughs> I should probably have had I think it it's Centuriata. <laughs> um, I think it's Comita Centuriata, if I'm not mistaken. 
That that sounds that sounds right actually. Yeah, uh, I don't have the Latin in front of me. I know very little Latin in general. <laughs> the only reason I, I stress the Latin is if you read about this stuff later, they'll be referred to both ways. Yeah, uh, and you need to know that it's the same thing they're talking about. Right, and you know th- this is a principle that holds true through, I think through all the levels of organization as well. When you have that sort of voting block, that group of hundred or you know in in other systems, however many they're grouping together. An absolute majority of the people in it determine the way it votes as a block. So right. each century gets one vote, but if 51 of the guys voted one way, that's the way the century votes. Sort of like electors in our yeah. constitution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sort of like the way that electors work. So th- those are your votes. Your actual votes that matter are the votes of the centuries. The century determines amongst itself how it's going to vote by a simple majority of the people who are in it, uh, but the actual political unit is going to be the vote of that of that block. Exactly. So that that's the comita centuriata. Yeah. This is going to be the 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 assembly the, of the main assembly. So there's really two significant ones. Uh, this is going to be the one that tends to protect uh, aristocratic interests. And that's due yeah. largely to how it's organized. Uh, organized based on people who own land uh, with the blocks of older soldiers, so soldiers that have more land uh, having greater influence than those that have less. And that's by design because it's supposed to protect sort of uh, people who have the greatest interest or stake in yeah. political outcomes, which are going to be landowners. So that's that one. Yeah. Cicero actually talks about that. You know, Cicero, yeah. the eminent statesman, talks about and, how that's uh, by design. It's intended to work that way. Yeah. And the, the powers that each of these groups have are sometimes up for debate and, you know, they change over time. But by the end of the Republic, what that assembly did basically was elect the highest officers in the Republic. So they're going to be electing your consuls. and, and What's a consul? The consuls were... The See, I say consul, I mean like the centerpiece in my car. Um. <laughs> the consuls, there were two of them at any given time. They were kind of the chief executives. So, you know, by the time of the end of the Republic, Julius Caesar is a consul and Nias They served for one year. Yeah. They can only serve for one year. They're only allowed to serve for one year. And then usually they shuffle them off to some province once they're done, because obviously that person becomes very influential yeah. after their consulship. So you want them out of Rome for a few years. so Everybody forgets who they are and they come <laughs> back afterward. Yeah. And they, they tended to have sort of more of a foreign policy and sort of grand politics kind of purview. Yeah. As did the Senate. Right. And yeah, they were closely aligned with the Senate. Yeah. So anyway. And it's, it's so Senate misconception, because we have a Senate, Senate has no legislative power. All of the legislative power is held by those assemblies. What the Senate does is they advise the yep. assemblies on what policy they think is best, which would usually end up being adopted. Right. And we'll, we'll talk in another episode about how that system worked and didn't work. Uh, ultimately, well, and the system changed substantially over yeah. time, too. You know, it's in, in um, I think about 400 B.C., uh, they adopted the 12 tables as sort of a sort of their constitution. And that's that was intended to protect rights of Romans. You read it, a lot of important rights in there. Notably, there is absolutely nothing structural right. about their government. There's nothing yeah. about voting. There's nothing about who does what, who has power to do what. For whatever reason, it's very, very rare for constitutions to do that, even though it's sort of the important thing for a constitution to do. Uh-huh. So they did not have that, which is going to give your constitution, the tendency to evolve. So we're speaking in generalities right now, but that's, that is the Comita Centuriata. Yeah. The other important assembly you got to know about 
is the Comita Tributa. Yeah, or the Tribal Assembly. And this one gets very interesting because the tribal system in Rome is super weird um, and had a lot of sort of ad hoc evolution to it. Um, yeah. In, interesting. And I, I think this is the one where they divide it geographically, right? Like you say tribe, you assume yeah. that it's going to be based on ancestry, but it's not. It's tribal land. Right. So this, this one ends up getting divided mm -hmm. geographically. Yeah, I, I was reading today about this. I'm, I'm really enjoying having access to a university library again because it's so much easier to find obscure information. <laughs> oh, the Lex Rex library uh, wasn't cutting it for you, David? Not, not quite, but uh, I was reading a book. <laughs> All of our, you know, 200 books or whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> I was reading a book specifically about Roman voting districts by uh, Lily Taylor. And this I thought was very interesting. They believe, you know, scholarship suggests that very, very early, it was sort of a clan-based tribal system, but that rapidly went away and was replaced by just sort of geographic units. Originally, very similar to our congressional districts. Actually, that's probably the closest parallel to yeah, our system. Yeah. And it's, it, it's interestingly, I mean, you ought to be seeing some parallels already. In the, They've got two, essentially, two legislative bodies, right? Two legislative houses. The first one is sort of represents the more aristocratic interests. That was Comita Centuriata. Yeah. The second one is divided geographically and represents the popular interests. Yeah. yeah. And Hamilton actually talks about that explicitly. You know, that's, that's something that he mentions in the Federalist Papers. Yeah, Federalist 34, I think he talks about that. Yeah. Where, where this system is very much unlike ours is that the proportionality is all out of balance. So yeah. there are four... No proportional representation. Yeah. yeah. There are four urban tribes, what they're called, in you know, that's geographically within the city of Rome. But... Uh, the Bloods, they, the Crips, who else? <laughs> like Suburiana or something like that. <laughs> anyway, I, I don't remember all the names, but I, I found this interesting too. There was sort of a The Bloods social... and the Crips are not... It's that's. <laughs> please don't think... That was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> there was, not, uh, not, they there didn't was, name themselves after Roman tribes. It's not no. right. There was a social status that was accorded to to which tribe you belong to, though, as well. So that two of the urban tribes were like the lowest status social groupings, and no one wanted to be a, to be a part of them. And it was interesting. Freedmen, so people who had been slaves and then became citizens later, were put in the urban tribes, as were illegitimate children of Roman citizens. So it was kind of the catch-all for people who were socially undesirable in the Roman Republic. But, huh. but uh, so how did the, because I, I know that there's basically a subcommittee of, of the tribal assembly that's the, the plebeian council. Is that yeah. related to that? Not directly, but similar to the, to the issue with the- it's for all the, the plebs. Yeah, similar to the issue with the plebs though, the disproportionality of the urban tribes was known and very clearly intentional. By the, the late Republican period, most Roman citizens belonged to four, the, the four urban tribes. There were 35 tribes in total. So most of the population- So what percentage belonged to four out of the 35? Uh, that's about 11% uh, of the vote. Wow. And you know, greater than 50%, I don't know exactly how much of the wow. Roman citizenship, but more than right. 50% in- Because remember, you, you can only vote if you're a male citizen. That's right. slaves don't vote, women don't vote. Uh, yeah. and, and Roman citizenship is not like American citizenship. You don't just get it. Yeah. Uh, it's something that it was, is more complicated. It was rare. Uh, <laughs> and that was, you know, 
again, intentional. It, it's, gosh. The, so the reason all this is so doggone complicated is because, remember, I started off this topic by saying everybody hates the way Greece did it. Nobody <laughs> wants a democracy because they're garbage. They yeah. result in tyranny and the destruction of your society. So what are we going to do to sort of balance these different interests that exist within a polis, you know, within a political state? Yeah. Uh, how are we going to do that? And Rome kind of did it in an ad hoc way yeah. uh, because they had a system that was designed very, very well to work for a municipal government. And then because they had a system that worked so well, they had such fair and just laws. Everybody started appealing to them, saying, solve our disputes. They started getting a bigger military <laughs> and through a variety of diplomatic and military means, yeah. they end up acquiring a vast empire Yeah. They're, using basically a municipal law to govern it. Right. The, the, sort of the growth of Rome into an empire, not in the literal sense of being governed by an emperor, but like in terms of gaining dominion over a vast territory is really fascinating because it happens almost by accident. <laughs> like yeah, through, and very you know, gradually. Like they, they just sort of, they start by being just sort of the strongest city in their area and then they form alliances and eventually they, they you know, sort of end up being the biggest power in Northern Italy and then, the, you know, things just keep snowballing until they're sort of the, you know, hegemon of this alliance network. But everyone wants to be in their system because they're Well, I think we, so we sort of, you know, we, we sort of think of Rome. Hollywood has conditioned us to think of Rome as expanding mostly through military conquest. Yeah. That's just not true. Rome had much clearer and fairer, more equitable laws than most other societies. So if you wanted a contract, you wanted that contract to be under Roman law. Well, it turns out that when your law starts extending over people who are not within your geographical region, you end up gaining a great deal of influence over those people. It becomes yeah. in everybody's interest to ally themselves as closely as they can with you. Yeah. So we end up having effectively a city council for the city of Rome, ruling over essentially the entirety of the known world. Yeah. And that that fact plays out very interestingly in this whole issue of the tribes because they start with, I believe it's 11 rural tribes. So 15 in total, four urban and 11 rural. And then they just keep adding more and more as they gain more territory. You ought to and be then, seeing shades of the political conflict that still exists. We've got yeah. um, people with land versus people that don't have it. We've got rural versus urban. These are the interests that are still very much at play in politics. Yeah, and eventually, you know, after Rome does become this kind of great military power, one of the urgent political problems is how do we, you know, how do we control the army? And we've talked about this before, but the most dangerous thing in the ancient world was trying to disband an army because they probably hadn't been paid what they were in theory supposed to be paid. They're the only and they lost their the jobs. So yeah. even if they had been paid, they're not being paid anymore. Right, and they're the only ones with the weapons. How do you get them to disperse peacefully? One of the things Rome came up with was land grants for veterans. So now you need to organize more land. And, you know, these are Roman citizens, so they need to be in one of the tribes so they can vote which one gets it. And so suddenly you have this kind of like core group of the oldest rural tribes getting land far away from them, disconnected from their traditional lands right. and just sort of all over Italy. And so the, the coherence of the territory completely breaks down as you've got these veterans getting new territories, but still being associated with these old tribes. 
And so for a long time, the tribes had kind of administrative functions. They collected taxes. They, they organized military levies. That became basically impossible the, the later this goes because there's just no, right. you know, it, the, the, the dispersion which it, doesn't make sense. Which is why more ends up getting consolidated under the Senate. So yeah. even though the Senate has no de jure, no official legislative capacity, because they're kind of in the middle of it all, they end up becoming more and more important. They were supposed to be focused predominantly on foreign policy concerns, and they do stay focused on foreign policy concerns, but they become a more powerful body as the Republic deteriorates. Yeah. So anyway, we, we that's the tribal assembly. The Council of Plebs is the third main sort of body. And they're uh, sort of a subset yeah. of the tribal assembly. It's it's basically just the tribal assembly, but without the patrician class, which is sort of the, the senatorial class, the, the real, real aristocrats. Like the the traditionally class. landed people, as yeah. opposed to the people that just got land because... Yeah, you know, the, the nouveau reach. Right, yeah. <laughs> Versus, yeah. <laughs> and this, so this group, I forget what the Latin is. I don't know if you have the Latin in front of you. <laughs> but Plebeian assembliata. <laughs> <laughs> right. The, the penne arabiata. I, I don't know. It all sounds like Italian yeah. <laughs> food to me. Council of Plebs appoints all of the tribunes, right? Yeah. They have sole authority for appointing them? Yes, because it's, it's specifically the tribune of plebs is the... the concept of the office of tribune so um, that that sounds pretty important yeah it is what's a tribune tribune is another sort of executive officer i believe there's also two another groups. executive officer so yeah. all right a different kind yes than, than a console and the, the important uh, <laughs> the really important thing about tribunes is that they have veto power and it's not always a hundred percent clear what they can veto but it's a lot one way or another, it's a lot of stuff they can veto. Again, ad hoc feature of the system. This was yeah. added because of some kind of civil unrest. Uh, I don't think we mentioned that earlier. So Council of Plebs is not an original feature of right. the Roman Constitution. That was added in response to civil unrest, I think, in the 4th century BC. Uh, and right, this tribunes of plebs were created as sort of an office to, again, sort of balance out the system to make sure that plebeian interests are sufficiently represented. Yeah. So... They have the veto power, and the other really important thing about them is that you really can't just assassinate them like you might with a yeah. lot of other uh, politicians. Because it's also have, a religious office, yeah, right? They are religiously <laughs> sacrosanct. They are under the special protection of the gods. Yeah, uh, I don't know how you do that with an ad hoc feature that you created <laughs> to counterbalance interests, but they have that. Well, and, so and the other element is that all of the plebs swear an oath to kill anyone who harms them during their their tenure in office. So that's yeah. sort of the, the more uh, pragmatic side of it, I guess. So then when Gracchus comes along, who's basically yeah. sort of a proto-communist, uh, <laughs> tries to tries to revise the entire... He's a council of... of he's one of the tribune from yeah. Tribune of the Plebs. So he is a tribune, this office we've just described. Tries to sort of throw the entire system into upheaval. What, do, what does the Roman government do? Well, naturally, they murder him. <laughs> as they're not supposed to do. Yeah. Uh, and you just murder everybody else involved real quick and make sure that nothing else yeah. you have a purge. goes awry as a result of that. Because <laughs> that's what you have to do. You know, when somebody notices a weak point in this sort of ad hoc system, you have to just real quick kill everybody involved so that knowledge of that never gets out and people don't exploit that, that loophole again. Yeah. That's, <laughs> you know, it's sort of what, um, what Merrick Garland's trying to do right now. All right. Well. <laughs> <laughs> that's... A, that's is that a joke? Is it? I don't know. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> yeah. So in, we'll, we'll almost certainly talk about the Gracchus affair in a later episode. 
uh, when we talk about the, the sort of the end of the Republic. But the, the last major thing I wanted to reference in terms of voting is that the order in which the tribes vote becomes extremely important. Yes. Because, well, among other things, until 139 BC, voting was out loud. So very easy to influence the system. You know, you have social patronage, so your patron expects you to vote a certain way. You have to vote out loud. He can tell if you do or you don't. And it also means that early voice tends to be the most important voice. Right. And then you, that, so it's sort of, sort of like a um, caucus in yeah. our system today. Yeah. Then you start getting secret ballot laws. Mm-hmm. And it's, again, usually the kind of proto-communist guys who, who want those <laughs> in Rome <laughs> because they don't like it, that things tend to keep going the same way. They want change. They want reform. Right. And the way that you get that, they figure, is, well, let's just vote in secret. Mm-hmm. But they keep voting in a particular order. Yeah. Yeah. So. And we mentioned there are 35 tribes. You tally the vote by the tribe as it goes. And once more than half have voted, if, if more than half of them vote in favor of something, the vote is just over at that point. So if the first 18 vote in favor of something, the last 17 never vote. It's just it's done. even though they are the more populous ones. Yeah. And yeah. that, that comes to a head with what's called the social war. Not like a civil war. The, the word socii. Most wars are anti-social, I would say. <laughs> the word, yes, but the, the word socii is Latin for ally. So you have this system in which there's very few Roman citizens and tons of other people associated with the system who don't have full citizenship rights, including the right to vote. And they increasingly make up most of the army. They have a lot of the land and economic power, so they're, you know, agitating for it. So it becomes clear they're going to have to be integrated into the system in some way or other. And to control the effects of that, one of the major plans is to group them all into just a few tribes, and preferably the last tribes to vote, so that, you know, you're going to So have that they this, have no influence. Yeah, you're going to have this huge yeah. population with functionally no electoral influence. Yeah, it, it's sort of, you know, there's there's currently a plan underway uh, in a few states to have a nationwide popular vote compact Yeah, uh, where they would basically ignore the votes of many of the states, similar to that. Yeah, so it's, yeah, it's an effort to dilute the voting power of this huge block in a particular interest, basically. Now, the allies don't like that. <laughs> You could also compare it to gerrymandering, although gerrymandering is not population based. So no, but it you know you Cl closer to the nation the, the popular vote compact. Yeah, so that kicks off a massive revolt that's only diffused when, in the end, basically they just make the concessions and say, "All right, we'll can you know we'll just give everyone in Italy basically full citizenship rights, and we'll apportion you know the representation in a more representative way." Uh, but the, the irony is that then within a few decades of that, a certain man named Julius Caesar comes along and functionally kills off this whole system anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I mean, you get precursors that with Sulla too. We'll get into that more yeah. Yeah. Uh, when we, we get into the Roman constitution. That was sort of our whirlwind tour of how we should have done it for Captain Kangaroo Court, really. I mean, that, <laughs> that's, it's a complicated system. Yeah. Um, what are our takeaways when it comes to Roman voting? Yeah. I mean, you see some aspects that are similar to how we do it. You also see how we corrected a lot of those flaws. Right. Uh, yeah. What are our takeaways? I think number one is, we've mentioned this before, but the way you arrange the vote is never as obvious as it seems to be in the abstract. 
Right. Why not just count heads? Like the way that, that Athens did it, that we agreed was universally despised. <laughs> well, among other reasons, because that is going to prioritize the people who can always be there to vote. And, the cities, right? Yeah. The people, and, the people they were constantly having to counterbalance against already in Rome right. were yeah. the people who were in the city of Rome itself. Yep. If you have just a simple head count, people that live far away aren't going to get counted. Yep. And that's something we, we mentioned in connection with the French Revolution as well, is that you're rewarding people who have nothing better to do but hang around at political assemblies all the time. <laughs> the very worst sort of people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, yeah, that, that's one of the major problems with a simple head count. And then, you know, the question of order and how do we, you know, who gets to go first? Because that can be very decisive. If you get the impression that the will of the majority is in favor of something, that's going to influence your vote. Yeah. Is it fair if, I'm sorry, is it more prone to corruption if we vote openly because people can be influenced since people know how they vote? Or is it more prone to corruption if you vote secretly where votes can be tampered with, uh, or, yeah. tampered with or manipulated? Um, you know, it's a very common way to manipulate the vote in ancient Rome was you'd have an auger come out and say there's ill portents for this particular week. You know that the bread rations come in or whatever, you know, some policy comes in a week later. Uh, you know that you're voting after that, and that yep. can influence the vote then. Parti doubly so if you don't know who's voting a particular way. So yep. you know, there's corruption issues with secret ballots yeah. too. We, we've seen that modernly in election challenges because once the votes have been cast, there's no way of tracing a vote back to the person who cast it. Yep. Uh, there's a real possibility of fraud and basically no way to catch it other than just showing statistical anomalies, which... Right. If you know the way that judges reason, judges don't really like statistical evidence. You can't convince them of fraud on that basis. It's so. also worth considering that in this mattered more then than it does now, but it still matters. If people aren't particularly literate, secret ballot is basically unworkable because you need to be able to... Blackstone and Whitestone. Yep. That's the way they did it in Athens. <laughs> yeah. It worked for them until people started putting in a bunch of extra stones. Exactly. <laughs> There's Anyway, and you know... How you divvy up your districts, as we've talked about, you know, there is a parallel to gerrymandering. There's a stronger parallel in many ways to the National Popular Vote Compact. But how you manage where people vote, how you sort of, you know, apportion the influence of different districts, this is a perpetual problem. Yeah. And, and in Rome, you know, we're not saying, oh, Rome, you were so stupid, you didn't figure it out. I think they could have fixed the problem uh, when they, yeah. they adopted the 12 tables. I think they really could have fixed it. The problem was that it was very much an ad hoc system. It right. wasn't It wasn't something they, they sat down and they were like, okay, how are we already organizing and structuring ourselves? How do we make sure that this influence is counterbalanced against this interest in a way that will last into the future? Uh, they just worked the way they'd always been doing it as a municipality, as a city, yeah. and then sort of turned the knobs and dials differently as needed, usually <laughs> after some kind of social upheaval. Yeah. And occasionally killed everybody that figured out there was a problem. Exactly. So they wouldn't do that again. <laughs> yeah. That's, you know, that's really turning the knob, the, the, the knob up, you know. That's, yeah. Well, one <laughs> of the ways that the, the late Republic solved its problems was frequently to just have bloodletting in the streets. <laughs> and that's not yeah. an exaggeration. <laughs> yeah, because it's you're threatening the very stability of your common union. Yeah. If you don't continue to exercise some means of appointing legislators and executives. That's, you can't just do it willy-nilly. You have to have some prescribed way of doing it. And if that gets threatened, that's a, there's not really a bigger threat than that. Yeah. And, you know, we'll talk about this more in a future episode, but 
This is one of the issues with having a constitution that is largely traditional and unwritten is that- Or when you write one, not putting in anything structural. Like, yeah. <laughs> like cough, cough, most of the world does now. Right. Uh, and, and you know, we've talked before about the British constitution, which is in large part unwritten. It does have written documents, but even that, which is probably the most stable political system over a long period of time. It's outside. barely the same system though. I don't know if you can even count it. Yeah, no, that, that's fair. I mean, it used, it used to be kingly sovereignty. Now it's parliamentary sovereignty. It's, exactly. it's literally ultimate sovereignty rests in a different body now than it did 500 years ago. Yeah, even then, where it's doing better than almost the entire world, it's still vulnerable to huge changes. And yeah. yeah that, that's... We've been remarkably stable here. You know, yes. people complain, 17th Amendment definitely struck a blow. Uh, Civil War struck some blows. FDR sure as heck struck <laughs> a lot of blows. But our system still basically works the way that it was intended to work yeah, when it was there, set up. Because our founding nothing... fathers did a really good job. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing like the, the long-term evolution in the U.S. has occurred over similar lengths of time in Rome. Anywhere. I don't think yeah. it's occurred anywhere. Yep. O other than, you know, states that are very repressive and mm -hmm. have no representation. I mean, like you could look at uh, just the bureaucratic state of Egypt, which was basically just perpetual bureaucracy. Yeah. You know, divine bureaucracy. Same thing with, with China. China did that for thousands of years. Very, very stable to just have bureaucratic rule like that. But I don't want that. We would like to be free if we could be. <laughs> That's, yeah. I think freedom's kind of nice. It's helpful. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. You don't have to go to the back of the store to get knives. You can just buy them. <laughs> yeah, uh, you, can, you can buy your kitchen knives on the sales floor. <laughs> <laughs> like a free man. Yeah. <laughs> All right, gather around, folks, young and old, shy and bold, rich and poor, uh, male and female, anybody who wants to listen to the eccentricities and crazy features of the legal system throughout the world, throughout the ages, join us once more for Captain Kangaroo Court. And uh, since we, as you mentioned, we are quite a bit over time, I'm just, I only have one thing. I don't know if you have anything you uh, want to share. Let's just do it. I don't have anything, so. All right, so very quickly, got a headline for you here. Lawyer is disbarred after email falsely claims he is dead. <laughs> oh, um, what, uh, like an automatic reply or what, what was well, it? Well, a California lawyer has been disbarred, the article says, after someone used his email address to inform ethics regulators that he had died. To skip his name, the email was sent to a deputy trial counsel investigating him in response to an out-of-office automatic reply. I saw this and don't know what it is, the unsigned September 2021 email said. This lawyer passed months ago. Why, why did he get disbarred for this if he didn't even send it? Well, a state bar investigator said in a declaration that she visited his home at a new address to confirm whether he had died. A man answered the door and identified himself as that lawyer, but declined to answer other questions. The state right. bar had sought to discipline him for failing to disclose his no contest plea to a petty theft misdemeanor. I see. Stealing from a, uh, Sears in 1995. The no contest plea wow. was set aside and vacated after he successfully completed probation. Yeah, uh, you've got you've to disclose all prior convictions of, of crimes, and yeah. no contest counts as a guilty plea. Uh, <laughs> so, okay, so they were investigating him because he didn't disclose a crime that he'd committed in the past. Yeah. And, and uh, rather than submitting that investigation, which probably would have been okay for him, 
Uh, it's petty theft. That's not necessarily a crime of moral turpitude. Yeah. Uh, but instead of just facing that, he claimed to be dead so they would leave him alone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it says he missed four bar court appearances, including his ethics trial. Uh, and, uh, yeah, after that, hmm. the, the, the bar sought disbarment for failure to appear and failure to seek to set aside the default judgment. Uh, All right. He so. told the bar in 2020 that he was retired from law practice and had asked that the disciplinary case be dismissed. But, yeah, it seems like in the end he was just tired of dealing with it and opted to say that he was dead. <laughs> yeah, not—retired is not quite the same thing as dead. No. Uh, although— <laughs> You know, if he's retired, he probably didn't really care if they yanked his law license. He probably no. just didn't want to deal with it. Yeah. And so I guess he got the result he wanted. Yeah. In the end, uh, he mostly didn't have to deal with it. <laughs> and all it cost him was his <laughs> That's law license. That's all that matters at the end of the day. Which he was going to lose anyway, apparently. <laughs> So, all right. So I guess, you know, that's I'll have to change my automatic email response. <laughs> I can't say that I'm dead anymore. <laughs> yeah. It's good to know. Yeah. A little all right. advice for you, I guess, as opposed to the audience. <laughs> <laughs> all right, folks, that's all for today. Thanks for joining us once again for Captain King Report, hearing some of the wild and wacky things that go on in our legal system, including people who are not are only mostly dead, I guess, to quote. Francis Bright. That's all, folks. So, yeah, join us again next week. All right, and that'll do it for this episode. As always, thank you for listening, and we hope that you'll listen again. All right, see you next week, folks. Goodbye.